Good morning, everyone. Let's begin with an invocation and a prayer, and then we'll get into our study of Pastor Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, today we will finish up the chapter on Holy Scripture, and then move on to our sinful condition. So, page 54 is where we left off. And to review, we have been talking about the importance of the efficacy of the Scriptures, the efficacy of God's Word. That is, that God's Word actually produces and does things. It's, it's a living Word, an active Word, a Word that creates, sustains, deepens, and expands faith within us. And then we shifted from there to, uh, I think this section would fall under... Um, well, I guess it's another, we've been looking at how God's Word is awesome, in the words of uh, Pastor Wolfmuller. And now, now we're going to be looking at the surprise of the next page. And this will bring us to our conclusion. So, page 54, the surprise of the next page. We are rarely astonished about anything, especially when it comes to the things of the Scriptures. The devil tempts us to desire things that are sinful, and there is an opposite and equally dangerous temptation to not desire the things that we should. This is the sin of boredom. We rarely think of boredom as a sin, but the devil uses our lack of desire against us. Okay, so some interesting uh, diagnosis there, if you will, that he is suggesting that it's not, not only do we want to avoid sin and thus just be sort of sitting in a kind of neutral space, but we also want to do what is right and be engaged with what is good and right. All right, so some interesting diagnosis there. He then connects the dots for us uh, with an example in the next paragraph. This often, often happens with married couples. The devil tempts them to be bored with each other. There is no liveliness in their conversation. Parents become bored with their children and children with their parents. Well, I think the latter there is much more often the case. School becomes boring. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, even from a very young age, kids complain of that. School becomes boring. Work becomes boring. Church becomes boring. The devil assaults us with boredom. Boredom is such a subtle sin that we don't even notice it. There is wisdom, though, in the ancient church. It recognized boredom as one of the seven deadly sins, acedia or achadia, it's sometimes called, sometimes translated as sloth. Acedia is a flattening of desire. Acedia is a lack of desire for anything, especially the things of God. Right, we could spend a lot of time talking about this because a kind of twin sin, if not identical in many respects to acedia, is apathy, just indifference 
I'm too lazy to even care if it's right or wrong. Right? Yeah. Just going to go with the flow. Um, we see a kind of spiritual acedia um, among us in the in the pagan sphere because it's you know it's like I don't care enough to be for God or against Him. I'm just sort of indifferent. I just want life to go good. You know that's kind of the no more thought is given to it than that because thought would require effort, and that's contrary to acedia or apathy. All right, now, what does this have to do with the scriptures? The third paragraph in this subheading. Every Christian is tempted by the devil to become bored with the scriptures. I've read that before. I've heard it all. I know that. The Bible is old hat, and I am looking for more exciting things. The de this desire for something new and exciting runs through American Christianity. This desire for something new, exciting, and entertaining stands behind the adjective contemporary, which is stuck like a leech to the word worship. Buzzwords like relevant and life application are indications that we seek excitement most often an excitement apart from the scriptures. All right, so viewed from this angle of look at being bored with church and looking for excitement, now this is how we have some of the spectacles take place in American Christianity, particularly mega churches, that kind of thing. Um, you can think of like pastors driving motorcycles in and fireworks and light shows and I mean, what is the, what is the point? The, the point of all of that is that church is boring and we have to do these extreme kinds of things in order to make it exciting. So that might be an extreme case of this lust for what is quote-unquote contemporary. Um, but then, of course, we have other buzzwords, relevant and life application. Um, it is, you know, it's interesting. In what sense could God's word be irrelevant? It's difficult to even think of a way in which it could be irrelevant. Now, life application, that term that Pastor Wolfmuller brings up, I think is interesting because there's a little bit, there's a little bit of room to kind of, uh, in that word, think critically. Now, when most people mean life application, that means they're bored with the, with the Bible, with preaching, with teaching, that is just like, well, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible's about. They're bored with that. So they want to know what that means for me, right? What is, how does this interface or connect with me and my life? I think, I think it's important to have a nuanced conversation here because there's a right and a wrong there, isn't it? We don't want to, we don't, on the one hand, want to have our theology be museum piece theology. Well, that's what the Bible says, and it's completely disconnected from my everyday life or how I think or perceive or act or um, hope. So we do, we do want and appreciate pastors and teachers who can connect God's Word and the, and the points of God's Word, the principles of God's Word, to our lives. Okay. So that's maybe the nuance. But the other side of that is, doesn't God's Word have value in and of itself? Yeah, doesn't it, by virtue of the fact that it's God's word to man, immediately have at least general application to us? Yeah, of course. 
So these are the things subtly being denied in, uh, in American Christianity. Um, I don't hear, I have not in my ministry uh, heard this frequently um, in regard to the ministry here at Faith, but I have, I, on occasion I have, rare occasion, um, but I have heard people speak this way about church in general. And the language is, I'm not being fed, or I wasn't being fed there. And that's always interesting to me. I usually, if I have opportunity, probe into that. I want to know and discover more, like what's going on behind that. Um, an ornery question to ask would be, was God's word not there? Because if God's word is there, shouldn't that be feeding us, irrespective of whether the pastor is good, bad, or ugly? So if God's word's there, then properly speaking, we're being fed because man does not live by bread alone, but by yeah, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So now you could find other reasons for not liking a church, no doubt about it. But at least that wouldn't be one if the word of God is there and the word of God is dwells richly. And of course, if you have a pastor get up and then expound upon God's word or explicate God's word in a wrong way or an inappropriate way, then you've got a problem. You might say, well, God's word was there. I was fed in so far as that. And then the pastor spent the next 15 minutes to 45 minutes trying to snatch out of my ears what God had just said and or snatch out of my mouth to stick with the analogy that which God had just given. And thus I'm not being fed. Okay, that, that's a valid critique. But we do want to we do want to think critically about this and in ourselves too. Um, is is my problem actually a spiritual problem where I am bored with God's word or not desirous of God's word? And then we want to be honest with ourselves about that instead of blaming others. You probably know people who have left a church um, and they're sitting at home and they're not going because of some great offense that that church or that pastor or those Christians did to them. But what you notice is it's like, okay, 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 so what So what church are you going to now? Oh, none. So you're sure your problem is with that particular pastor congregation or those particular people such that you're just not going to church at all now? How does that make sense? Why wouldn't you be in church and just be thankful that, you know, you found a place that's more comfortable for you. So you can often see, you can often see and spiritually diagnose that if someone's cut themselves off from church and they're loudly exclaiming the faults of the pastor congregation, etc., um, and then that seems to increase over time, not decrease, that what you actually have is someone who is bored with God, bored with God's word, doesn't like it, and is looking for an excuse. A scapegoat. Please. Oh, we've got to get you a microphone. Hold on one second. Forget what you're going to say. I think it's more than just the church. I think it's society's kind of inuring us to um, expect to be taken care of, to not think, to not have a discipline. And, you know, we often say it's entertainment, but I think it's more than that. If you have to, you know, Bible study never finishes without us seeing something in Scripture that you relate to. Mm -hmm. And I always think, oh, that's a miracle. But you have, 
you have to read it and really look at it. Mm. And yeah. if you're not willing to do that, somebody said years ago that to be in a liturgical church takes discipline. Mm. And most people aren't ready to expend that discipline. And they were speaking of Jewish, Catholic, and Lutheran. Interesting. Yeah, and I thought it was too because I didn't understand it, but I kind of do now. Just want to trot into a big church, trot out, and not, <laughs> not invest in anything. Yes. And you say, I went to church. Well, I, I have thought, what? Alice, just to kind of riff off on, on a tangent, I've, I've often thought that obviously the great strength of the Lutheran church is communicating the efficacy of God's word, that God's word is doing things to us, and that we are, we are passive recipients of God's monergistic work, God's work alone by himself upon us through his word and means of grace. But the, the unfortunate aspect of that is, is the devil then wants to tip that, that, that good and true theology, he wants to tip that to an extreme. And the extreme is this. Well, if God's doing all the doing, all I have to do is show up. And I don't have to, I don't have to engage. I don't have to think. I don't have to do anything. I just sit here like a bump on a log, passively receive, and then go home completely unmoved, unaffected, unchanged, not considering. So that would be the extreme. Okay. Well, then, then what would be a corrective to that? Well, pay attention to those times in Scripture where Jesus admonishes us to be careful how we hear. Be careful how we hear. A neighboring admonition is to not be hearers only, but doers also. And so, so those two points are enough to reset our minds as Lutherans, we go, yes, I'm going to divine service to receive the gifts of God. Those gifts are of his grace, apart from my own merit, works, or worthiness. But I'm going to receive them in such a way that I'm not a bump on a log, but I am, I am grateful for what I'm receiving, receiving, and I'm going to receive it with joy and thanksgiving, and I'm going to do the application to my life. I'm going to hear what God says, listen carefully, Take the time and then, and then see how those words of the Lord speak into my own unique circumstances. And if I get hung up on something, I might even say to the pastor, Hey, this is what I'm hung up on. What do you think about this? And take his counsel and, and consider. But that's, um, there is, even though our theology is true and it's true enough and it's right and true. One side of the coin, it is we passively receive the gifts of God. There's this other active side where we need to be careful how we hear, as Jesus says, and then not be hearers only, but doers also. We want to be active in our receipt of God's gifts. So there's that component as well. I, it's often, I, I think it's just a truism. I don't really care if it, if people like think it, they like it or not. It's just true. In all of life, you get out of it what you put into it. There's that dynamic, and that dynamic doesn't change on Sunday morning. Um, if you if you go and actively participate in the worship and grab hold of the hymns and, um, you know what is that Magnificat? Remember Mary's song? Um, it was our gospel. The rich he sends empty away. When he feeds the hungry with good things. The rich he sends empty away. I often think of that in the context of the divine service. That there are times, quite honestly, where I come and it's like, 
I, I recognize in myself the sinful richness and fullness. I'm not hungry. I'm not devouring the word. I'm not excited about it. I'm not grasping a hold of it. I'm not chewing the food, you know, and, and digesting it. I'm just there passive and I don't get much out of it. Well, who's to blame for that? You know, if the, the great feast can be laid before you, but if you won't take, eat, chew, swallow, you're not going to enjoy much of it. And so, so the rich he sends empty away, but the hungry he fills with good things. So how can we come to church hungering and thirsting and then receiving with gratitude those things that God has for us? In the, in the language of the hymnody, incredibly rich and complex, expressive of in some cases, millennia of Christian thought, um, and then the richness of the liturgy. Where I tell you, I tell you what, I've been a pastor for 15 years. I've been doing our liturgies for 40 years, and I am still surprised by things in the liturgy because it's God's word. It's living and active. And then you've got the word of God, which is changing the themes of the day and the preaching. And then you've got the Lord's Supper. So many wonderful things. And, you know, the Lord's Supper has so many dimensions to it. We've, we've studied that together. We study the Lord's Supper and all the different motifs and ways that the scriptures have for us to understand, investigate, explore, and experience the Lord's Supper. There's all this richness. If we come hungry and then willing to receive what God has for us, uh, we will never go away empty. If we come full, then we can't be surprised when we are sent away empty. Please. Um, well, what you're explaining is one side, but there is another side that when somebody that is coming to Christ knew, and we go to those churches, and they don't teach us the mm. Word of God, but they, that is the excitement that they, you know, psychologically uh, bring it bring to us to continue going to church mm -hmm. but not reading the word and that's where you know oh comparing uh what the what the bible says and what they teach on stage mm. is really boring what the bible's talking uh. about because it talks over and over and over about jesus but on stage they they do talk about us and how we have to live a, a Christian life and all these beauties and how we can achieve our best mm -hmm. uh, life. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it, it's psychologically, they know how to work on these people to continue using uh, everything they teach us and not based on the Bible. But we, we don't know. We trusted in that pastor. We trusted in that church that they're going to, guide us to the right path. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the way you put that. So if we, um, because I think it's a very valid, a very valid critique of at least some churches in, in American Christianity. If you take those words like contemporary, relevant, life application, what that frequently translates to is uh, what we would really call a law-driven message, kind of mixed with prosperity gospel. Right. So here are the 10 steps to a better marriage and the 15 steps to a better you and how to run a Christian business. And the message is if if it is Jesus crucified for you for the forgiveness of your sins, that's usually tacked on at the beginning or the end. While the 45 minute message is really 
law-based. What are you doing for God? And and then, ironically, in order to get stuff for you, right? So what are you doing for God in order to get stuff for you? I mean, that's quid pro quo. That's, hey, God, I'm here to learn how I can, like, scratch your back so that you'll scratch mine. Yeah, I'm here to learn the dynamics of becoming a successful Christian, whatever that is, yeah. Yeah, so I thank you for that. I think that that fits right within uh, Wolf Mueller's frame. And um, I've experienced that kind of thing in a mega church setting. So maybe that's where it's more common, you know, larger churches anyway. Please, Felix. Yeah, extending just a little bit more what you just said, that when people say, I'm not being fed, mm. I heard it and I keep hearing all the time. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. me, is a lot of time because they go to church expecting the church or the pastor to tell them what mm-hmm. they want to hear. Ah, uh, yes. If right. they don't hear it, they don't get fed. Yes. So that's how that's how we've seen with you know mega churches it's exactly what happened with the Joe Osteen's mm-hmm. type of messages. Mm-hmm. That's that, what that makes them you know feel like oh I didn't learn anything today because uh, I can't yes. do anything. Ah, yes, exactly. Thank you for pointing that out. So that that harkens back, that ties in two ideas from this text, the idea we're presently thinking of, and the previous idea that Wolf Mueller introduced us to, the opinio legis, the law written on the human heart. And so very frequently from sort of a, a consumer standpoint, I'm only being fed if I recognize that the church is giving me something I can tangibly accomplish. Right? And that ties in with the opinion legis of, um, hey, I need to, I need a mar- my marching orders so I can do them. That's what it means to be f- fed. And if I'm not receiving that, I'm not being fed. It's just all this Jesus stuff and gospel stuff and God stuff, which that doesn't feed me. The answer there is in some ways correct. It's not going to feed the opinio legis, <laughs> that desire to um, be of the law and be standing before God in the law. Right, we need, we need rather um, that opinio legis within us to be put to death by the true, proper, full teaching of the law and then the true, proper, full teaching of Christ. Only, only then, once the opinio legis has been put to death, can we actually become children of God made after his image, doing the works of the law freely, naturally, willingly, delightfully, because we are children of the Father. But a totally different dynamic. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a good point. All right, any other observations on this point? Yes, please. I'm interested in the area of uh, this apathy and if it's a human condition that we we basically have in a broad way. Uh, I recently uh, read something that explains uh, maybe this, and it says, we are unhappy because we have all that we need and want. Mm. Therefore, I think that fits in with uh, we're seeking thrills we're seeking something this explains where the boredom may come from and mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's really interesting to diagnose things along those broader lines i think we could spend a lot of time thinking about the ways in which our our very affluent society where we have so many of our basic needs met in many respects choke out the joy of life and give us an illusion that we don't have any dependency upon God or any desperate need for God. 
You can think of this anecdotally. I mean, this is a little abstract, this kind of conversation we're having, but you can think of this probably a little more personally. If you look back on your life, at what points in time were you praying the most fervently and uh, reading the scriptures uh, with the most um, desire for, for what they have to give you? Uh, the extremely good times in your life or the not-so-good times? Yeah, by and large, it's the not-so-good times in our lives where we find ourselves praying naturally. It's not like we have to discipline ourselves and say, okay, now I'm going to schedule all of this. No, you, when times aren't good, you're just praying. And there is, um, there is something we've lost as we've gained so much affluency and security, or at least the appearance of that, um, in our culture. We've lost touch with give us this day our daily bread. We've lost touch with our complete and total dependence upon God. And thus we've lost touch with the fervency and just organic nature of daily prayer, um, both petitioning God and giving thanks to God when He does give to us. It's part of our uh, the give and take of our modern, our modern predicament. One, um, one apologist has, has I think really shown that what we've, what we here in the West have taken away in terms of, um, you know, physical suffering, we experience very little. Go get a Tylenol. Um, go to your doctor and get prescribed some medicine that will take away whatever physical or psychological pain. Um, the other half of that is a deeper psychological and spiritual emptiness that's corresponded with that, a kind of internal suffering. Whereas the external suffering um, leads one more, much more immediately to God. A farmer out in the fields who his fields are going to support his family or not for the winter is going to have a spirituality quite different than the suburbanite who just goes to Costco and, you know, sees all the shelves stacked with more food than he could eat in a lifetime. So there's a different... You know, there's a different contour there. And that's something we want to be conscious of ourselves so that we're not deluded and led away from God by the, our many and great, great riches. In this respect, too, I was, uh, I had caught the tail end of an article, or, or I guess it was an interview, and the topic was um, gluttony. Uh, and the more nuanced views of gluttony and how you can't just equate gluttony to overeating or being overweight or something like that. It's much more, it's much more nuanced. And part of that kind of gluttonous attitude is a security um, that what we have will always be there and I don't need to pray to God for it or give thanks to God for it. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting to think along those lines in the context of our uh, current milieu of abundance, or at least apparent abundance. So I thank you for, uh, I thank you for those reflections. I, I was the one that led us off on a bit of digression here, but this apathy, this acedia, kind of comes from having uh, too much in terms of the body and thus being full and too full for the gospel. Okay, well, let's go a little further. So the surprise of the next page is where we're at, and so we want to we want to get to the want to get to the scriptures and delighting in the scriptures. So 
Last paragraph on page 54. The excitement is in the text, Wolf Mueller writes. The surprise is on the next page. The Bible has the most profoundly surprising words ever written. God never does what you expect. If you try to guess as you read the Bible what will happen next, you will always be wrong. All right, and then he takes us through some examples from the scriptures of very surprising stories. Um, Adam and Eve break God's design, and what does God do? Promises his own death to save them. The entire world sinks into wickedness. What happens next? God has Noah build a boat and rescues him. Abraham worships idols. What happens next? God calls him to be the father of the Messiah. And of course, Moses. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And God waits for 80 years. He permits this. And then he goes into a flaming bush, a burning bush, and tells Moses to go argue with Pharaoh. Of course, there's David who wants to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. The Messiah is going to come from your line. And so we, you know, we lose sight of the surprising nature of the scriptures. We forget how wondrous and counterintuitive the doctrines of God are. And when we lose that awe and wonder and think we know everything, then we, we blind ourselves. We enter the scriptures with, yeah, I know all this. There's not going to be any surprises. Just last night, uh, the vicar and I were looking at scriptures and talking about ways in which he and I both just even recently have been surprised by the scriptures and in fact have had kind of the rug pulled out from under your feet. If you spend enough time with the scriptures, you'll often get this um, in several different ways. What you thought was true or axiomatic, all of a sudden the scriptures say, eh, not so fast. In fact, some of the you know, some of the most challenging parts of scriptures, when I was a young pastor, I was very nervous about this because, you know, you're supposed to be the guy that has all the answers. And then God slowly humbles you and, you know, you realize uh, there's no way you're going to have all the answers. Uh, Christendom collectively doesn't even have all the answers, uh, but we do have wonderful and great and true answers. But there's so many parts of God's word that are mysterious. And they're mysterious specifically to bring us into awe. They refuse to be commodified. Um, they refuse to be translated into simple slogans. Uh, they're mysterious. They're inviting. They're category breaking. They show us always uh, that God has more for us, more to think about, more to understand. So th those are some of the riches, the surprise of the scriptures and, as Wolf Mueller puts it, of the next page. So then he goes on to talk about Jesus and the profound surprise that is Jesus. Bottom of page 55, and we'll wrap this chapter up. Every page of the Bible, every chapter shows this. God never does what we expect of him. And this delightful unexpectedness crescendos in the New Testament. Jesus is the best at surprises. A man asked to be healed, and Jesus spits on his eyes. A woman prays that her daughter would be rescued from the demons, and Jesus acts like he can't hear her and then calls her a dog. He walks on water, sleeps through a storm, and pays taxes with a coin in a fish's mouth. Jesus blesses the children, drives out the money changers with a whip, visits Samaritan towns, and talks to a Samaritan woman. 
In fact, we are always surprised to find Jesus in the company of sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. His teaching is always astonishing. His life is always shocking. And his death is the biggest surprise of all. He opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7, before his accusers. He is struck, whipped, mocked, spit on, falsely accused, nailed to, the, to a cross, dies, and is buried. This is not expected. The Lord of life, the creator of the universe, in flesh and blood like mine, bearing my sin, suffering what I deserve, he was crucified, and all of this for me. We are awed, stunned at the surprise of the gospel. My heart faints within me, Job 19. The gospel is always a surprise. We, in some ways, expect the law. God says you're a sinner, and we say, yeah, I thought you would say that. I figured you noticed. But then, your sins are forgiven. Really? I died for you. What? I love you. I delight in you. Can this be true? The gospel is always a surprise because it is never earned. It is never expected because it is never deserved. American Christianity fails when it looks for something to spice up the scriptures and when it seeks something more exciting than God's word. The devil tempts us to be bored with the scriptures, but we fight this temptation with the scriptures themselves. The Bible is the antidote. God's word creates faith, and God's word creates delight and joy in his word, in his gospel. You know, and that's such great, so the point of that would be, hey, even if you're not feeling it, still go to church, because the solution is going to be God's word, you know? It's like, well, I'm not feeling God's word. Get more of God's word. <laughs> that's what you need. There's nothing else that's going to help or save you. So God's word creates faith. God's word creates delight and joy in his word in his gospel. The blood of Jesus is spilled on every page of the scriptures. This is the same blood that covers you and washes away your sins. And with this blood, your name is written in his book of life. All right, so very insightful chapter on the scriptures, some of the abuses of um, American Christianity. Again, we're not trying to pick on anyone in particular here, um, even though in some, in some churches this is much more obvious than in others. Uh, but this is really an American problem, and many of these problems permeate um, our churches, no matter what uh, denominational name is hanging on the side of the, of the church. All right, so that's chapter two. Any concluding thoughts or questions or conversation you want to have in regard to the scriptures? Let's go on then to chapter three, which Wolf Mueller has titled, How Bad a Boy Are Ya? And obviously here we're going to be introduced to our sinful condition and the nature of sin. He begins by quoting Ephesians 2, 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Wolfmuller writes, All falls are not the same. Falling off your bike is quite different from falling off the top of a building. Every theology has a doctrine of the fall, and every doctrine of the fall answers certain questions about the fall. The questions are, how far was the fall? Was man wounded or killed? 
how much of man's original goodness and freedom is left, if anything. What is our true condition? The latter is an especially important question. An error here will spread through our entire theological thinking. If we get the diagnosis wrong, then the cure will certainly be wrong as well. Woe to the man with a gunshot wound whom the doctor diagnoses with cancer. We know we can't trust ourselves with the question of our true condition. If you ask the man on the street if he is a good person, the answer is almost always yes. Or at least I'm better than most. Isn't that true? We all think we're above average at everything. <laughs> Everyone can't be better than most. Paul reminds us that we are all bad, really bad. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans three ten through 12. Okay. So this is true of all of us um, in our fallen nature and apart from Christ. It's even true for us as Christians if we isolate the old Adam in us or judge ourselves under the law and the law alone, we would come to these same conclusions that there is indeed nothing good or worthy in me. All right, an important point here is, okay, so you've got the man on the street, your average person thinks he's a good person, and that indicates to us that our sinful condition is so devastating that it's even affected our ability to judge accurately. So, in other words, the condition is so bad we don't even know how bad our condition is. It's a little bit um, like certain forms of leprosy in the scriptures where the, as the disease progresses, you lose feeling. And so you don't actually know how bad you are. You can't feel your, the tips of your fingers coming off because you've lost feeling long ahead of that. And so you can't know how bad or experience how bad you actually are. Um, that is uh, one of the revelations that we will all likely have as we die and transition from this life into uh, the kingdom of heaven and paradise with our Lord Jesus. We'll say, I had no idea it was that bad. I didn't even experience or know in my heart, even though the scriptures told me, how truly dead, diseased, and filthy uh, I was. So that is, um, that's part of the revelation given to us in God's word, and even now we recognize that we don't experience the half of it. Okay, so again, we're honing in on those words from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, dead in trespasses and sins. So that, um, the uh, right towards the bottom of the last full paragraph on the page of 57, the scriptures teach that we are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Our sinful flesh is incapable of knowing or understanding God's word, 1 Corinthians 2.14. We are by nature God's enemies, Romans 5.10. Children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. The diagnosis is bleak. 
The Bible's teaching of original sin is the preface to the gospel. If we are not the children of wrath, then the wrath of God poured out on Jesus is ridiculous. So what you see, unfortunately, in our time and for some time past, is a denial that Jesus' death on the cross is for us, that it has anything to do with the forgiveness of our sins. We see this in Lutheran circles. I've heard it in Roman Catholic circles. Eastern Orthodox circles, by and large, believe this. So what's going on here? Why would someone deny the atonement? Why would someone deny um, that the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus? Well, it actually starts with an earlier problem in many cases, and that earlier problem is that we've diagnosed our own sin wrong. We don't view ourselves as children of wrath truly, and thus the idea that God would pour out his wrath on Jesus in my place is offensive. It makes no sense whatsoever. Only when we first get the diagnosis right, that is that we are truly children of wrath, can we say that there is no escape but that that wrath be transferred to Christ on our behalf. Only then will we grasp hold of the atonement taught in the scriptures and say it actually makes perfect sense. You have to get the diagnosis right in order to get the cure right. If you've gotten the diagnosis wrong, you're going to get the cure wrong as well. All right, so very bottom of 57, last couple words. If we are not dead in trespasses and sins, then the death of God for us is nonsense. In other words, the only way the death of Jesus makes sense is if we are broken beyond repair. Unfortunately, many theologies soften the Bible's teaching on sin, and this is true of American Christianity. American Christianity softens the Bible's teaching on sin. According to American Christianity, the fall made us sick and weak, but not dead. Right. There's a key distinction. So, um, in formal Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and American Evangelical teaching, uh, we are sick and weak, maybe, but not dead. We still have a free will. We are still are essentially have a good heart that seeks after God, etc., etc. Uh, we are not spiritually dead. So this is a big deal, foundational. In fact, in many respects, you can even look at the Reformation event and say it was in fact about this teaching right here, um, whether or not we are dead in our trespasses or just mostly dead. If mostly dead, we can help ourselves. In fact, it's incumbent upon us to meet God insofar as we can meet him. In fact, there was a Latin phrase at the time of the Reformation, facare quad in se est, and it translates to do your best and let God do the rest. <laughs> facare quad in se est, do that which is within you, um, and God will, God will cover the rest. And so... Um, the reformers objected to that because they said, you're incapable of doing anything. You're incapable of meeting God 1%, 10%, or 100%. There's, we're dead. Dead means dead. And there, of course, then um, the, rest, the rest flows. Um, when you have a different diagnosis of the condition of man, you're going to ha have a, then a different gospel presented. All right, so... Dead in our trespasses. Dead means dead. Ephesians 2. 
We can also see in Scripture language of being weak and sick, etc., etc., but that never contradicts the fact that we are profoundly spiritually dead. You can move, you can have the greater, which is spiritually dead, and then move down to describe ways in which, by analogy, we would be sick and weak, but you can't have sick and weak as your frame without rejecting dead, you see. So you can have, um, you can have both and, as long as you begin with we're dead. You can't have both and if you begin with we're sick and weak. All right, so just continuing with that paragraph, American Christianity teaches that we are depraved, but not totally. It assumes that there is some spark of good, some small amount of strength and power left in us after the fall, enough for us to cooperate in the work of salvation. American Christianity teaches that we have a tendency to sin, but that this tendency is not itself sin. Hmm. Sometimes you see this terribly. Pa pastors will mangle this, and they will say um, that you, you haven't actually sinned until you've done it. So you can, you can think about it all you want, <laughs> but, it, but that's just temptation. But then it's, And it's not sin, and as soon as you've done it, it becomes sin. What a terrible and pernicious thing. I mean, as if to think that... So here's, here's a great way of thinking about this, these questions. If it's not true for Adam and Eve... Or it wouldn't be true, if it would be unthinkable for Adam and Eve. I mean, could Adam and Eve have sat around in the garden thinking sinful thoughts, just not acting on them? Oh, of course not. Of course not. In what sense would they be good? So if Adam and Eve can't experience this before the fall, then experiencing it after indicates a disordering of creation, indicates a sinful fall within the nature. So... Yeah, so this is, this is important that we get this distinction right. Let's just pick back up with his train of thought here. American Christianity teaches that we have a tendency to sin, but that this tendency is not itself sin. So Lutherans, along with the Scriptures, would say, no, the tendency to sin is in fact sin. The sentence continues, and that our free will to obey God was not destroyed in the fall. And again, Lutherans would disagree with that point. We would say it is destroyed in the fall. We have an ability to live civilly moral lives, to sort of obey the laws of man and general forms of morality, but we really do so only because it serves our best interest. We do so because if we didn't do so, there'd be a consequence, right? Um, if you could speed without consequence, wouldn't you? I, I would. Um, and then if you just take that sort of thing um, and, and flesh it out to the extremes, if you could enact revenge or justice, would you not? Um, if you could uh, take wealth for yourself and distribute it to those who are in need, would you not? Um, if you could uh, act as God, would you not? Um, and so... The idea of the law hinders us from doing these things because it lays consequences at the end. Go ahead and try and see what happens. So then we convince ourselves, well, I'm obeying the law. I must be a good and upright citizen. No, you're just not wanting to get caught or suffer the consequences. Very different. So civil righteousness is a kind of bound righteousness, and it's no righteousness at all. Um, this is why, for example... Uh, Isaiah would say, your righteous deeds are as 
filthy rags and talk about the kind of righteousness that human beings have. It's not worth anything before the sight of God. All right, so we're seeing here then this idea, this free will to obey God um, was in fact destroyed by the fall, and what replaces it is simply self-interest and a kind of facade of righteousness. I mean, thus, for example, uh, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed sepulchers, as whitewashed tombs. The, the righteousness is paint deep. It's, it's, not, it's really rather thin. Uh, inside is death and sin. All right, continuing with this paragraph, we'll, uh, we'll round this out and then we'll pause for some questions and comments if you have any. In fact, Wolfmuller writes, all of the theological tenets we have identified at the root of American Christianity require some manner of goodness to be preserved in us after the fall. This teaching is wrong and has disastrous results in the conscience. Revivalism, which necessitates that the unbeliever make a decision for Christ, requires a free will. Pietism, which expects me to find comfort in my own good works, assumes my ability to accomplish good works. Mysticism, assumes I can stand face to face with God. So there must be something good or noble left inside me that can withstand the holy presence of God. Right, and mysticism often says God's within you, so you're already good enough. All right, so there's, a, there's his critique where we, where we get the diagnosis of sin wrong, we're going to get the gospel wrong. Where we get the diagnosis of sin wrong, we're going to believe that we're capable of all these things we aren't in fact capable of in and of ourselves. We're going to be led right into the trap of revivalism, pietism, and mysticism. So you can see then how devastating this really is. One chapter, the first chapter in this book, is diagnosing the problem and introducing the problem. The next chapter is scripture, and then this chapter, sin, he could have just as easily flip-flopped those two chapters. We could begin with sin, um, find that he began with Scripture, uh, because Scripture is what indicates to us our sin. So you can see what he's doing here. But foundationally, sin and one's concept of sin then leads into how one sees the gospel, how one sees human activity, how one sees the entirety of theology. So it's really foundational. All right, let me stop talking for a moment. Let's see if you have any questions, comments, or ways in which this resonates with your experience. Um, if you could expound upon the, uh, the watering down of sin a little bit more in relation to the term that Montgomery coined, uh, gospel reductionism, mm. uh, I really, uh, I think that explains a lot um, in the sense that when when parts of Christianity water down their sin and their in their own lives, they're watering down the gospel to to mm. because they're they're doing away with the gospel because they don't need it. Oh yeah. So it's kind of what yeah. what you're talking about, but it, the other side of the coin. The yeah. Same coin. yeah, it's such a brilliant thought you bring up, Bob, and you explained it so well. I think to do it justice, I would have to spend like an hour on it. I won't yeah. do it, so I won't do it justice. But if you, so what happened, remember when we were talking about higher criticism in here? 
um, in this class, in the chapter on the scriptures. Higher criticism, this idea that, that the scriptures aren't God's word, they just contain God's word, and it, conveniently it's up to me, the higher critic, to decide what's what. Um, so, so this is, this is, um, this gets termed as a gospel reductionism when in particular Lutheran circles interact with this higher criticism. You go, well, the things that I know for a fact are God's word are the gospel things. The rest of it's up for grabs, probably didn't happen. And this kind of slowly morphs into a law gospel ideology and a, and a sort of gospel reductionism period, even apart from the text. And so that kind of runs like this. Um, the gospel sets us free from the law. So whatever you don't like, okay, whatever, just imagine something you don't like. The step one is label it law. Step two is destroy it with the gospel. Okay. So I don't like Paul's statements about women. Aha. That's law. The gospel is an end to the law. We don't need to listen to Paul. Thank you, Paul. Um, I don't like scripture's statement on homosexuality. Okay. That's law. In with the gospel. The gospel destroys the law. We can do whatever we want. The modern manifestation of this is the evangelical Lutheran Church in America and how they're how they've completely gone into apostasy, basically destroying anything you can imagine from church to ministry to doctrine to morality because this, these things have all systematically been labeled law and then wiped out by the gospel. Now, this takes much more subtle forms and forms that have interjected themselves into other Lutheran circles, including ours. And one of the things that you see here, again, is this idea of um, whatever I don't like is law, and whatever I do like is gospel. And what you end up having, having here is because you limit the law in such a way as just whatever I don't like, or to put it the other way, whatever condemns me is law, you have an atrophying or an emptying of the content of the law to where the law is no longer the substance of the Ten Commandments and the moral substance of God's will for us in our lives, but the law is just God saying, you're, you're, you're naughty. Okay? Similarly then, the gospel, and I think this is your point, it gets emptied out. And it's no longer Christ who must atone for these sins and restore me to the fullness of of the embodiment of what it means to be a human being in the image of God. But it's since the law is just now you're naughty, the gospel is just, but Jesus loves you. And so then the gospel starts to uh, become emptied of content until it's just these words, I forgive you. And that's it. And you've just got all of the Bible boiled down to you're naughty, I forgive you. That's it. And anyone else who wants to bring up anything else is a... Uh, legalist because you're entertaining the law so you have this law gospel reductionism and then in fact what starts to happen is the i forgive you starts to shift because i forgive you still has within it this nascent idea of your sinning which is law and so then the gospel of the i forgive you starts to become more like um whatever you do it's okay everything's going to be okay and so then you get, the law is naughty, you know, you're naughty. The gospel is, but everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. So here we are. So here we are. We've destroyed law. We've destroyed gospel. We've taken Christ out of the program. And we've, we've invented a new religion for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that comment. I see a hand over here. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, please. Uh, 
question about how we think rightly about God inside us if that's mysticism, but the Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So how do we... Yes, yes, good point, good point. So um, from our contemporary perspective, there's there's some things we want to keep in mind there. Okay, so mysticism, the God within, tends to come to us as a new age idea. The divine spark within, and we've flown out from God. And so if I want to get in connect with, you know, in connection with God, I would never go to like a church or a pastor or the sacraments. I'm going to delve within myself and seek the divine spark and find the God within. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I'm critiquing there. Okay. Now, so then, so then what's that? What's the ham-fisted Christian and all too often Lutheran answer to that? God is entirely outside of you. He's entirely located in these other things. Okay, that's just sort of like a reactionary answer. As you point out, does not the Holy Spirit come and dwell within us and make us his temple? Absolutely. Does Jesus not say the kingdom of heaven is within you? Absolutely. Do not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come and make their abode and home with us? Absolutely. So we don't want to react against this um, this sort of uh, new age mysticism that permeates so much. We don't want to react against it in such a way that we deny the truths of Scripture, that God's external things come to us and affect and change us internally. We want to hold both of those together. So hopefully that gives you a, a more full answer to that point. Great questions, great comments. Thank you all so much adding to our class here. Did I see another, please? Oh, we're over time. Would you would you like to go after the bell? All right, <laughs> All right. So let me just close things off then, um, and we can continue to discuss, or you can feel free to go as you need to. Um, so next week we will simply pick back up on this theme: How bad a boy are you? The Lord be with you.